Okay, so the world is full of many firsts. The first time you won an award, the first time you worked as a child, your first salary. And if you're a woman, the first time you clocked that, the world is prejudiced against people like you. Today's episode is about the first time as women we experience discrimination because of our gender. Hi, I'm Yasmin Abdelmajid. Um, I'm a writer and broadcaster, and I'm currently in Paris, but I'm usually in London. I called Yasmin to talk about today's episode, and she was in a bit of a mood. Crazy coincidence. She had just experienced discrimination from the French authorities for being a woman. So I'm in Paris at the moment on a writer's residency. I won this, uh, well, I was selected um, from a number of applicants to do a writer's residency in Paris. Um, and it's an amazing opportunity. And I was looking to, so I'm here only for a short while, and I was looking to maybe extend the residency a little bit and so therefore extend my visa. And, you know, everyone has a dream of being a writer in Paris and how, you know, how wonderful that will be and blah, 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 blah. And I thought... Okay, let me let me extend my visa. That shouldn't be a problem. I will get an artist visa. I'm applicable. All good. Inshallah. And I put in my application. And they this afternoon, I get an email back saying, well, actually, your photo is um, not compliant because you're not allowed to have a hijab or anything covering your head in the photo. And I was like, oh, that's strange. Um, Let me just check if that's, you know, like I have worn a hijab since I was 10 years old. Um, Let me just double check this. And so I I started asking around and everyone was like, yeah, yeah, sorry. Actually, if you want to apply for a French visa or if you want any sort of French ID, you're not allowed to wear a hijab. And I was like, excuse me? so, So I have to take my hijab off in order to apply for this visa? And everyone's like, yeah, yeah, that's just the way it is here. 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 This is not shocking. France has always been hostile towards the hijab. In 2004, Muslim headscarves were among the banned religious symbols in public schools. In 2011, they banned full-face veils in public places. And there's a fine if you wear a bikini to the beach as a woman. And don't forget that in 2020, at the peak of the COVID-19 pandemic, France mandated the wearing of masks in public spaces while still banning the Muslim face coverings. Which means, I was, I mean, actually, I was planning to live here for the next year or two, even. I was applying for a three-year visa. I had already started making plans. I am now going to probably leave this country because... I refuse to take my hijab off for the sake of some French bureaucracy because my hijab does not, it's not a security issue. It doesn't block my face. The only reason they want you to take it off is because they have some warped idea of like secularism or universalism. I don't even know what their reason is for demanding that I take something off my body, which I have made a choice on. I just find it so violating. This is crazy, right? But it's not Yasmin's first, second or third time experiencing discrimination. It's something she has had to deal with a lot as a black Muslim woman. Hi, my name is Aisha Salahuddin and I like girls. This is a podcast about African women and the different experiences life throws at us just for being women. 
Yasmin was born in Sudan, and when she was about a year and a half, her family moved to Australia. I would say that, like, I kind of grew up very aware of gender roles, but I personally didn't feel limited by them. I felt like they were things that I could transcend if I wanted to, but I could also find comfort in them, um, which I think maybe is also part of the fact that my parents, you know, because we were the only, we were one of the very few Sudanese families in Brisbane, in the town in Australia that I grew up in. And the next family didn't come till maybe 10 years later. So my my family created a very small unit where our own, we created our own culture, if that made sense. And my father, to his credit, you know, even though he is a patriarch in a lot of ways, he did also, I think, um, give me a lot of room to sort of be who I wanted to be. You know, if I showed interest in science, he would um, nurture that interest. If I, uh, you know, he would always encourage me to learn how to make things and to come along with him to the important meetings and get involved and this and this and this. So so even though um, for my father, he was still a man who would say, you know, a woman should get married and, and this, this and this. He also, I think, gave me the space to um, to flourish and it and and so I I guess I grew up feeling very like okay I'm a I'm a girl and being a girl means certain things but also if I decided to not do the kind of quote unquote typical things that a girl did my parents would support that and I guess that's a really you know that's probably the best you know a young African mm-hmm. girl could ask for really Yasmin grew up with gender rules like pretty much everyone in an African home but she wasn't limited by them. The other thing that I would say is that my mum was very much of the view and brought me up with the idea that, like, Islam was a very radically feminist religion. And so she would always say to me that your rights as a woman are protected in Islam, so don't let these men take these rights away from you. And I think that also meant that I felt like I had you know, I had God on my side kind of thing um, as a kid, which is like a pretty powerful thing for a young kid to feel, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So was it, was your neighborhood then primarily um, white or was it, could you, I guess, give me a sense of what your neighborhood Mm. was like here? So growing up, Australia and the place that I was in Australia was, yes, very, very white. Um, The the sort of there was a small Muslim community, so we spent a lot of time with the Muslim community, and it was a very multicultural Muslim community. So there was like, there were Lebanese people and Algerians, um, and Fijians and South Africans and Indonesians and lots of Pakistanis and Indians as well. So the 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 mix meant that like we didn't necessarily feel like there was any one community's rules that were like the whole community's rules. If that made sense, everyone kind of we were still a, a very burgeoning. Like I'm talking really only a few hundred families in the whole town. So we really knew all of the Muslims. Yeah. So was it in some way kind of lonely, not seeing anyone that looked like you? Or was it something you had learned to adapt to and wasn't much of a bother for you? I guess I didn't know it could be any other way. Yasmin's major identity while growing up wasn't black or being of African descent. It was Muslim. So she didn't really interrogate her race or gender. The the challenge of, of growing up in a in a home where things are fair or things feel equal um, is that it's a very rude awakening, the, the real mm-hmm. world, you know. 
I think that for a long time I got signs from the real world, but I didn't listen to them. You know, I, I went and did mechanical engineering and there were seven girls and 300 men. And, what? and we went, yeah, we wow. were, yeah. So yeah, 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 yeah. That, that's like, that's the ratio. Um, I was never taught by a woman. Um, there were no, you know, we never studied female engineers, like, you know, but, but I kind of just didn't really pay attention to it or I hadn't become awake to what that meant um, until I started working. And I would say the workplace is always the place where uh, out maybe my generation of women really come is one of the strongest places um, that my generation of women face the, uh, the gender inequality because, you know, school is one thing, university is one thing, but in the workplace, you're not only dealing with your peers, Mm -hmm. you're also dealing with many different generations and many different systems and structures. My first job was as like a, a, a specialist on a set of tools in the oil field. Right. And I did that job for almost two years. And like, you know, I was I was the first woman they hired in my department in Australia. Mm-hmm. So I knew that I was different, let alone a Muslim woman, let alone an African woman, let alone a woman who wore a hijab. You know, everything about me was different. So I, I kind of knew and expected that things would be a bit different for me. But then I got another job in a much bigger company, a big oil company. Um, and I had, you know, I came with experience. I came with good um, credibility. I was actually headhunted into this role. And then when I knew, you know, women are always told that we don't negotiate enough for the pay. So I was like, can I negotiate my graduate salary? I was actually taking a pay cut to go into this company. So I was like, can I can I negotiate my salary up? And they were like, no, 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 we don't actually do any negotiations. Like, this is a good deal. This is how the system works. Great. I was like, okay, fine. She joined the company in 2014, and it was kind of a big deal for Yasmin. She was going from a contractor to someone who'd help run the oil rig. It was a much senior role, with a lot more progression opportunity for her career. They didn't let her negotiate her salary. You can't negotiate. We have a very strict system. This is the system. This is how much you get as per the system. Everybody gets the same. You know, that's just how it is. Right, and the way that the system worked was like um, you have the base salary, and then if you have like X number of years of for every extra year of experience you have, um, they will give you more money. I was like, fine. And then I start the job, and they at the same time they hire me, they hire another guy who I also went to university with, and I and he graduated a, a couple of years after me, and I knew him from university. And he mm-hmm. did not get good, as good grades as I did. You know, I got first class honours. Um, I had worked with him on an assignment and I knew that, like, you know, my standard was was much higher. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was, you know, one of these, like, I wouldn't even say charismatic. He was just, like, a white guy with a lot of confidence um, who liked earning money. And... Um, and after, a, I can't even remember, maybe like a few weeks, we were, we were talking about, because I, um, we were talking about pay for some reason. And he said, oh yeah, I'm getting paid this much. And I was like, how come, how come you're getting paid that much? You just graduated. Like you don't actually have the experience because he was essentially getting paid the equivalent of someone with two years experience. 
I was like, how did, and he was like, oh yeah, I just managed to convince them that, you know, the, the work that I did over the holidays was equivalent of all of this experience. He was earning 20% more than Yasmin, who had better grades in uni and a lot more work experience. He basically negotiated his salary, something Yasmin wasn't allowed to. I was like, oh, but they said I couldn't negotiate. He was like, yeah, but you know, you just negotiate anyway. And I was like, okay. Um, He was like, oh, you should try it. I was like, okay. So I sent an email to HR and I was like, oh, I've been having some discussions and I think actually that I deserve to get paid more because, you know, I found out this other person, blah, blah, blah. They called me into a meeting. They were like, how dare you discuss your salary with another colleague? How dare you? Wow. They, they told me, oh, she, this, this woman, this white woman sat me down and essentially told me off like I was a child. How dare you discuss salary? You should not be discussing your salary with anybody else, especially other graduates. We have a system, blah, 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 blah. This is the system. There is no way that you can get paid anymore, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, wait, how can this be? So she didn't even address what you talked about. She no, kind of no, was no, just no, going no. off on you. Oh, she was just, she, she, she didn't even like deign to address. She was just like, how dare you speak about this? Wait. There is no negotiating and it's, I can, and you are in trouble for even daring to bring this up. For context, before Yasmin got hired at this company, she had been running an organization called Youth Without Borders. As a result, she had won an award for the Young Australian of the Year in her state. So she was doing quite well. But when she joined the company, Youth Without Borders became a side thing. And the people, senior people in the company were saying to me, you need to stop doing the stuff outside because people think that you're not doing a very good job at your actual job. And I, I said, but the thing is, I am doing a good job. You know I'm doing a good job. I'm outperforming people. And they're like, yeah, it doesn't matter that you are actually doing a good job. The perception is that because you're doing so much stuff outside, you couldn't be possibly doing a good job here because the guy before you, um, he was doing so much outside that he wasn't doing a very good job inside. And so uh, everyone just assumes that, you know, you, you, you're not doing a very good job. It sounds like they're just trying to make you stop doing all the other things we're yeah. doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Yasmin was given a disciplinary warning for activities outside company work. It didn't feel fair because she was the highest performing drilling graduate in her entire region. I was what? like, I was like, what else could I possibly do? You know, because, because what happened when they gave me a disciplinary warning is that they docked my pay. They took away my promotion and they said that rather than going and working on the rigs for, um, a year, which was what I was meant to do. I was literally just about to go off and work on the rings. Um, you're going to just sit in the office. You're benched for the next year. Wow. I was being punished. I was being punished. I was being punished for being too good. The company's behavior towards Yasmin wasn't just about her side activities. It looks like they had this out for her from the beginning. You know, by telling her that she wasn't allowed to negotiate her salary. Yeah, that's crazy. So, I'm, I mean, I have many... Th- theories but like is it because you're a woman you're muslim you're a person of color was it all of it combined because i think it's all of it right i think that like the thing is for someone like me it's very difficult to know if it's because you're a woman or it's because you're 
you know, uh, an African woman, a hijabi Muslim woman, like I'm all of these things. I think that ultimately I was too much, I was seen like there was the gender stuff, but it was also the fact that I did not fit their idea of what exceptional looked like. You know, when it really came, they said that they wanted it, but they actually didn't know how to deal with it when it got there. Um, and they were not willing to, like, I'm not saying that I was perfect. I was a graduate. I had a lot to learn. Of course, you know, I'm, I, I, I was, I was not a prodigy. I was just very good at my job and I worked hard and I wanted to be good. And so I, I put in the work, you know, I really respected everybody that I worked with and so on and so on. But the thing is, is like, when it comes to, especially these big corporate spaces, they want you to be something. And that something is a very particular man is a very particular, often European or Anglo-European man. And when you're not that, it, then you have to either squeeze yourself into the closest approximation of that, or you you leave, or you, do, or you like, you know, f- um, like contort yourself and um, really harm yourself in the process, I think. I think, like, what I realized was, they don't actually, they think that they want me, but they don't know how to handle me when I get there. You know, people call it going from pet to threat. You know, initially when you arrive, Mm. you're a pet, everyone loves you, the most exciting thing ever. And then they realize you might actually be pretty smart. You might actually be better at them. Or you might actually one day lead them. Oh, they couldn't possibly handle that. There's research to support Yasmin's theory. According to a report in the Social Science Research Network, women in Australia whose social identities are different from dominant workplace expectations, white, straight, less than 40, encounter obstacles that make their career advancement much harder than other women. By the way, Yasmin eventually left her company in 2017. It was just a lot to deal with. I asked her how she made sense of all the macro and microaggressions she faced in her career as an engineer. I don't know. I think I'm still, I'm still learning, you know, I am still trying to figure out like where my place is in the world and what I do with these experiences. I mean, I'm now somebody who is a writer and broadcaster. Um, I would say that some people call me an activist or an advocate. I think that activism is a way of life. It's not a job. Um, Everything I do is informed by my politics, is informed by my experience, is informed by my faith in what I think I should do in this world. And so I guess when it comes down to it, like the way that I have made sense of what is happening is to like, number one, know that I am not lesser because even though the world might treat me as that, I am not the problem. The problem is a system that says, you know, Africa is lesser than the rest of the world. The problem is a system that says women are lesser than men and other gen. Like, the problem is that we exist in a world that has very strong ideas about the kind of people that we are. And so it is an act of resistance, I think, to continuously remind ourselves that those messages are not true um, and to continuously remind ourselves that we cannot let their expectations of us limit who we are. And yeah. it, it is exhausting. It's exhausting, but it is also, I guess, part of um, part of this life, huh? Yasmin and I talked for an hour. It's a lot to compress into this episode. 
She's experienced bullying, discrimination, and hate multiple times as a result of her gender, religion, and race. But she's tough as hell, and she continues to bounce back every time. The the flip side to that is, like, it's important to find things that fill your cup. It is important to find things that give you joy. You know what I started doing recently? I started learning how to watercolor, because I was like, you know what? <laughs> I don't know how to paint. Let me learn how to paint. I'm going to draw, I'm going to paint pictures of birds and flowers and cartoons. And that's just going to give me joy. And that joy is not, it's not owned by anybody. It's not for anybody. It's just for me. And it just makes me happy. And so I think, you know, whatever way that you find to give you joy and to fill your cup, I think it's very, very important because it is a lot. All of this stuff is a lot, but we have to, in order to balance all of that out, um, we have to take our joy seriously. If we're being realistic, the chances that Yasmin will experience more micro and macroaggressions is high. But as I said, she's tough as hell and she'll continue to fight discrimination. here. So I'm interrupting this episode to let you all know that we have just one more episode till the end of season one. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to take a break for a couple of weeks before we start producing season two. We have big plans. I promise you it's going to be so much better. Make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at I like girls pod so that you don't miss out when the new season starts. Also, please subscribe to our newsletter. The link is in the episode notes. Okay, I'll let you get back to the episode. Welcome back. We're still talking about first. That first moment we realized that as women, the world is unfair to us. Hi, my name is Ndilokelwa Ntengwe. I'm 24 years old. I'm from Namibia and I live in Ventuk. I'm an intersectional gender justice activist. Ndilo grew up with her mother, stepfather and three brothers in Namibia's capital city. Yes, definitely. I was very, very close to my mom and my siblings, especially because I would say maybe because I was the only girl. So it was almost like that I had to always be protected. And so I always, I always existed as an extension of this, I would say, power system amongst my brothers who constantly aimed or intended to protect me because I'm their only sister. Even my twin brother, we're the same age, but he still felt this moral obligation to protect his twin sister. And so I was very, very close with them. And I think I was socialized in that way as well, because that's how I also just started playing soccer because everyone else is playing soccer. That was more relatable because it's three, it's a ratio of three to one, you know? So I adopted the other, other different codes and, or sports codes, I would say. And so that, that made, that, that grew us much closer on top of that, with the extended families of just having male cousins. So it was definitely, we, would, we grew up very, 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 very close with cousins and, and just also our internal family. I mean, just based on how you grew up, it seems like maybe you didn't really 
or maybe you didn't think of it then, but you didn't really have any exposure to the world being, would I be correct to say that the world being unfair to women because everyone at home sort of like was good to you and protected you, right? Would it be correct to say that? Yes, definitely. It would be correct to say that because my assumption at the time was I'm being protected because um, I'm, I'm the little sister, but also because I'm a girl. But I think it was the fact that I, I took that as a privilege that, oh, I have brothers to protect me, but I didn't understand psychologically. And also I would say socially how the world would, again, in relation to power systems and how women are always, always subjects, you know, of, of, of men's power place and power dynamics and how it was not necessarily that I was being protected, but I was rendered agentless. And so only later on, I began to understand, but I think your protection over me is, is about dominance over me more than it is allowing me to have my agency to recognize also that your protection also comes with violence. Andilo's brother's protectiveness over her wasn't entirely from a place of safety. It was more about control. They dictated what she could and couldn't do, where she could go and where she couldn't. It was just as, a, as, as if I was an extension of their image, of their ego, and also just of the socialization of misogyny and power systems rooted in male privilege and male dominance. So... Yes, I felt safe, but I think it's only in relation to where it has to, but what where it has to do with their their own image and control of me. And beyond that, I think that's when I become confrontational, or that's when I begin to become confrontational around this specific power dynamic. When Indira was eighteen, she moved to South Africa to study. It was then she realized that she had freedom to do whatever she wanted. So when I moved to Cape Town, I recognized how, you know, I actually, I can, yeah, I can do what I want. But at the back of my mind, because of the internalized misogyny, the socialization, and I guess the fear of, of being undesirable once again to, to this gaze of my brothers, to men in general, I still almost, I would say, kept kept a little bit of respectability politics for myself, even in another country. And just just, just because you don't want to offend again the, that, you know, that hierarchy and that power dynamic. So I think when I did move to Cape Town, I had more room to just be myself. And I think most times I wouldn't want to come back to Namibia because I knew that as soon as I, as soon as I land through at this airport of ours, this gulf of conservatism, of patriarchy, and I guess just less agency will begin to, again, you know, descend, and then I'm back to square one. Ndilo is speaking now with the benefit of hindsight, right? So I asked her to take me back to the first moment it occurred to her that the world is unfair to women. I think it, it was definitely a cascade of moments, right? Because in my gap year, I, I bought two books. I bought A Passion for Freedom by Rampele Ramapele, and I bought Run Racist Run by Eusebius Mekaiza. And 
so what I do, I read two books concurrently because I just feel that I can fill up more space and I have more time in that sense. So as I was reading Rampele Mamapele, she also talks about the intersectional violence that she's experienced as a woman, as a black woman in South Africa at the time growing up under the apartheid regime. And she talks about race, gender, and also about economic agency, right? And, and in Run Races Run, Eusebius Magaiza covers again race and to a very large extent also gender and how in these two books really they were relatable and the context was relatable because Namibia was also one of the, the countries that was under colonial imperialism and also under the apartheid regime. So when I started reading Rampele Mamapele, I began to then understand, I would say, my context and I began to interrogate power systems in my life, right? And I think it's this quiet power that begins to brew inside of you because at the time you're just reading your book and you are in your room alone. That was what I was doing. So as I'm reading, I'm beginning to, you know, make sense of everything around me. I'm beginning to put two and two together and I'm quietly brewing with anger, right? Because now I understand, oh, is this how I'm treated? Is this, is this who I am, you know? And is, am, I, am I a subject of my brothers? Am I a subject of the men in my life? Am I a subject of, of misogyny in society, right? So when I started reading the book and then on top of that, the race aspect that comes in, wow, I'm a subject of racism and institutional racism, internalized racism. As you can tell, reading open in Dilo's eyes to misogyny and how society treats women, she began to ask questions. Interrogate a power system. Why, for example, am I the only one washing the dishes today? Or why is it that, you know, I'm the only one that's supposed to go to church, you know? She realized that the only way to be totally free from the control of her brothers was if she gained economic freedom. Like if she got a job, became independent, and probably moved to a place of her own permanently. Yes, I, I still hadn't moved out at the time. I only moved out this year in January. I think the last week of January. And, but I would say that I have began, even before I moved out, I began to experience much more agency and and expressions of freedom and that was rooted in just my my identity my gender identity and embracing my sexual my sexuality i think my brothers and family have also began to to be sensitized by these confrontations because when i started working at the the at one organization outright namibia in 2019, that's when I also began to elevate my level of advocacy, especially for sexual gender and sex minorities. So to be rooted in an organization that primarily focuses on the full, you know, humanity of sexual gender and sex minorities in the country and to extract that information and plant it into the many different debates with my family, and understanding that they do not have the information that I have, I think that, that gave me more power. 
So information also is very, very empowering. And you can, you can have these constructive build on conversations and debates and understand that you are also in a way sensitizing them. So they, they could not rely just on their own information. It also elevated their understanding and quality of, of relating to, to, my, to my arguments. And so there was a lot of sensitization that took place over the years. And so when I moved out of my mother's house in January, it, it felt that I was just moving into a different strata of freedom compared to the ones that I had already ha been have, had access to. So, so that was how gradually I, 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 I began to, 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 to assert myself. And so after moving out, I think now I'm really experiencing my full humanity in relation to, or in comparison to where I was. I asked Ndilo to give me a scenario of the confrontations involving her brothers or any other family member. You know, um, get a sense of the scenario. So what was, do be like a, a job in explaining what like the scenario was like when all of this was happening. Yes, so we was, we were seated outside. There's a small patio outside with some grass and a few chairs, some wooden chairs and there was music playing and we were sitting in a circle. So in the circle, it's just now the conversations going back and forth. And this was how the confrontations and the different debates occurred over the years. But I think also worth noting is that some of them also occurred in the house, you know, in the lounge. And I can remember one particular one, and this was really around menstrual health or menstruation rather. And I think my brother's friend made a very, very misogynist and crass comment because he had at the time broken or hurt or injured his, his knee, right? So he, he had some bandages over his, his, his leg. And what he described his pain, he said, it's more painful than a woman menstruating. So I looked at my brother because Again, men only check, men only, you know, confront each other best. Men confront each other's misogyny best compared to women because if it's women, then they will say again, uh, it's rooted in your emotions, you are emotional. And that again is rooted in misogyny. So I looked at my brother because it was very offensive, right? Before I commented, again, that was just, again, looking at permission because there's again a power system there. So he looked at me and he looked at his friend and he told his friend, no, you can't say that. And the friend was like, no, but it's true. And then my brother began to ask now, are you, do you bleed every month? Do, do you have a womb? This is not compared by any, any, any measure, you know? So these confrontations also took place inside the lounge, in the living room, outside at the patio, sometimes in the garage and... And yes, all of them have their own way of really, yeah, exposing a lot of a lot of issues that I I began to challenge and and I've come to understand about male privilege and misogyny. And 
Ndilo has come a long way, from not fully grasping how society is unfair to women, to reading about it in books, to questioning the power structures within her own family, and finally deciding to use her voice and words to fight injustice against women and other minorities. Last year in Namibia, she was a prominent voice in two massive protests. Okay, so there were two protests that I, I led last year. The first one was the in June, after a petition was launched to reform the current restrictive abortion laws in the country. Because at the time, and currently the laws are just, it's just limited to whether it is through rape or incest, you can obtain an abortion, whether it's through rape, whether you've been, if you've been raped or if it's been through incest, if it's a threat to a woman's life, if it's a threat to the fetus. And the other is, I always forget the third one. Okay. So in Namibia, you can't have an abortion unless the pregnancy endangers the life or mental health of the woman or child. Or if the fetus was conceived through rape or incest. These laws are restrictive to women, right? Best believe in Dilo was in the front, leading the protest against this outdated law. Ndilo was also a big part of the Shut It All Down nationwide protest against femicide and gender-based violence in the country. Shut It All Down was very personal to her. We had, so I had, a, I had a cousin, her name was Shannon Wasserfeld, and she was reported missing since April last year. And this became national interest because now the family, we reported it to the news, we looked out to just see you know, who can assist with finding her? And she was reported missing in a coastal town in, in Namibia, in Erongo region, I would say. And so whilst the reproductive justice protests and the advocacy, you know, came along, in October the 5th was when they reported that they had found her remains in a shallow grave in one of the coastal towns. So because of the national the outrage, everyone began to really, everyone was angry, you know? And that's when the shut it all down protests and the movement was found. That's how I also was at the forefront and we went to various ministries. We protested at the Ministry of Social Security at Home Affairs. We protested at the Ministry of Justice. We protested at the Ministry of Gender, in fact, twice at the Ministry of Gender, I think three times actually. And this we called for the resignation of this Minister of Gender because we just felt that she does not outlive her mandate as, as someone that is at the helm of this specific institution. All of these protests, confrontations with her brothers and family members are how she navigates unfairness in the world towards people like her. And Dilo understands that she has to continue to fight one way or the other for equality. She refers to herself as an intersectional gender justice activist. Okay, so I would say what this means for me, and I think this is something that I have, I have, I have really, I've really um, began to interrogate and to bring, so just to bring more, sorry, to bring more perspective into why I would label myself as an intersectional gender activist. It's because when I started working at Outright Namibia, when I was still there, I began to realize how, firstly, sexual gender and sex minority issues are not prioritized and, in fact, are not integrated into mainstream discourse of activism. 
And that speaks particularly to economic empowerment and social empowerment, for example. So as an intersectional gender justice activist, I, I began to understand, okay, but your work has to be intersectional. And also coming back to now, say, for example, we consider the LGBTQ community often also in this space, there's a lot of marginalization and, and effacing of trans, trans community issues. And that speaks again to intersectional feminism and not just, not just prioritizing women's issues, but prioritizing all women's issues. And that comes to women, gender non-conforming persons, the trans community, and then we have the gay, lesbian, etc. So that speaks to intersectional. But what I'm building more on that is really bringing in the environment, bringing in the economy, you know, and that again speaks to intersectional justice activism. And I think what I normally come back to is how I've been reflecting on what gender equality means for me. And I would always say that gender equality is not a destination, but is a dispensation, right? And so this means that we look, we need to look at, we need to interrogate what exactly we mean when we say that we are designing programs for vulnerable people, but at the same time exclude a group of vulnerable marginalized persons because of our own homomisogyny and because of our own, our, I would say, blind spots, you know? I feel in Dilo, her activism and fight for justice is cumulative and recognizes that discrimination is layered. For example, you can't claim to fight for minorities without including the LGBTQ community. You also can't claim to want liberation for women without considering multiple forms of discrimination that they face, like sexism, classism, and racism. I think this is a good place to end this episode. I noticed with Yasmin and Indilo that the minute they recognized how unfair the world is to people like them, they immediately began to fight it in their own different ways. This is the reality a lot for African women out there. It's not fair, but here we are. Thank you for listening to this episode of I Like Girls. If you want to get in touch, visit ilikegirls.co. Also, if you like this episode, please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on. This episode is produced by me, Aisha Salahuddin. Audio engineering is by Mo Isu. Samia Talamutu is our editor. Meramomoyele is our graphic designer. And our theme music is by Banks with a double G. The other music you heard throughout this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. Special thanks to our partners, Radio Now 95.3 FM, Newswire Nigeria, and Femme Africa. I'll catch you all next week.